0: Good morning, everyone. Morning. Morning. It's wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. Now, if we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're joining us for the first time or just the first time in a really long time, we are so glad to have you. And we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, unless you're an Alabama fan, in which case you can see yourself out. I was feeling pretty low around 3 p.m. yesterday. To that a m game. <laughs> oh, thank you God. The Lord taketh away and the Lord giveth. The Lord does. The Lord does. I've always been an Appalachian State fan. I'm not being vindictive. Um, always. So today we are in the fifth week of our series. It's called The Apocalypse, A Study of Revelations. A series where we're walking through the very odd, uh, very interesting, very important, but unexpectedly joyful book of Revelation. As the series progresses, I will not have time to summarize everything I've previously said by means of a short summary at the beginning of the sermon, because then I'd spend the whole sermon summarizing previous sermons, and that would make for a very boring sermon. It's a sin for sermons to be boring. Can I get an amen? Amen. Scripture's too interesting for sermons to be boring, and so uh, if you're just joining us today, I can't cover everything we've covered thus far. You'll just have to go back and listen a little bit, but here's a basic lay of the land that we've covered thus far. Revelation is first and foremost, a letter. A letter that was written to seven churches in ancient Asia around the end of the first century. We've mentioned that the most important rule of good biblical interpretation is that the Bible was written for you, yes, but it was not written to you. So if you wanna understand what it might mean for you, you must first understand what it meant to them. This is always important to remember when reading the Bible, but it's it's especially important to remember when reading Revelation, because as we've been at pains to make plain throughout the course of this series, Revelation is a very, very, very weird book. And so, if our interpretations are not anchored in what was actually intended in the original context, then we're just going to start making stuff up. You've seen people make stuff up. I've I've just made it up before when I interpret the Bible and. When we make stuff up, our interpretations tend to be very self-aggrandizing and or self-pitying. And everything that goes wrong means it's the end of the world. And everybody who doesn't agree with us is the Antichrist, especially the last president who you didn't vote for, right? It's Biden, it's Trump, it's Fauci, it's Putin. And so in order to avoid this kind of unanchored and thus inevitably very self-centered biblical interpretation. We've spent the last four weeks trying to ground ourselves in the circumstances that actually occasioned this letter. They've spent the last two weeks talking through these seven specific churches that the letter was actually written to, observing what uh, Jesus, through John the Revelator, was trying to say to them, and then by implication, what Jesus might want to say to us. Uh, Up until this point in Revelation, John the writer has been primarily focused on the present. Present meaning His present, the first century, right? And not our present, but now in Revelation 4, his focus is gonna start shifting a little bit toward the future. But our first stop on this exploration of the future that starts in Revelation 4 is a visit to eternity, reality outside of time in some sense. If you got your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in Revelation 4. We're gonna read the whole thing. It's really quite short though, 11 verses be on here, uh, up on the screen behind me as well if you would like to read up there. Revelation 4, verses 1 through 11. Now, after these things, after the messages to the seven churches, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. Now out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and all around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each one having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. in day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who lives forever and ever, and they will cast their crowns before the throne, and they will say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Revelation 4, 1 through 11. So this is one of my favorite pictures in the entire world. I from the Hubble telescope a few years back. It's a picture called Galactic Center, as the title implies. It's a picture of the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. And there, at the very center of our galaxy, amidst all these explosions of, of light and energy, things go completely dark. The lights go out. Because there, at the very center of our galaxy, there's something called Sagittarius A-star. Right? So you can see here where Sagittarius A-star is. And Sagittarius A-star is a supermassive black hole. This is the best picture we've been able to get of it. This region of space so dense that not even light can escape its grasp, right? Hence the name black hole. This region of space so forceful that it it bends time. You wrap your brain around that? Something so powerful that bends time. And you've seen Interstellar. This region of space so potent, so forceful that it pulls our entire galaxy around in circles. We are 26,000 light years away from Sagittarius A-star. And yet its gravity is so potent, its pull is so powerful that we still feel it in every, in every rotation of the earth, in every tug of the ocean's tide, in every gust of the wind, in every single heartbeat, we feel it. And as astonishing as that picture is, what John offers us here in Revelation 4 is in many ways even more astonishing because instead of just showing us the physical center of a galaxy, what John is showing us here in Revelation 4 is the center, like caps, right? All caps, the center of all reality. We've said throughout Revelation that the book is primarily about unveiling. And the first word in Revelation, the word from which the book gets its name is the Greek word apocalypse word which, uh, of course, translates to this uh, English word, apocalypse, and it evokes this image of a curtain being ripped open so that we can see behind the scenes and we can see what's really going on. And so as the curtain is ripped open and John steps through this door, standing open in heaven, what does he see there at the center of everything? Well, you might have noticed that John wants to describe what he sees, but he's very careful to communicate that he cannot fully describe what he sees. And this is why he uses the word like so much. Did you notice that? He says the one sitting on the throne is like a jasper stone, that the rainbow around the throne is like seeing an emerald, that the sea of glass before the throne is like a crystal, that these four creatures around the throne are like a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. Now, John's not some, you know, valley girl or a modern middle schooler who can't complete a sentence without using like, like 10 times, like. No, he's he's trying to communicate. He's trying to describe that. He's trying to describe the indescribable here. Uh, One of William Blake's most famous paintings tries to help us more visual people out a little bit. This piece is called The Four and Twenty Elders Casting Their Thrones. It's a painting about this scene here in Revelation 4, the center of all reality. And let's linger here for a moment on the first thing that John sees when he steps through that door standing open in heaven. After stepping into eternity, the very first thing that John sees is a throne... And the one who sits on the throne. At the center of all reality, there's a throne and it's not empty. Somebody's sitting on it. Now for most of human history, the idea that there was a throne at the center of all reality and somebody who sat on the throne was a very standard belief because humans have basically always been religious, very religious. And basically every religion believed that there's, you know, a throne and there's somebody sitting on the throne, that there's somebody in charge. Now they would disagree about who was sitting on the throne An ancient Egyptian or Canaanite or Jew would give you a different answer to that question. But they all agree that there was a throne and somebody was sitting on it, that somebody was in charge. Then, about 500 ish years ago, there was this very profound shift that took place in human culture. And this shift was not about one thing, but a convergence of things, a layering of causes. Uh, we had the advent of, of modern science, wherein things that were once only explainable in spiritual terms now became explicable in uh, strictly physical terms. You know, 2,000 years ago, if somebody fell down beside you and started shaking, seizuring, you would think that what had happened? They were demon possessed, and what do they need? They needed an exorcism. Nowadays somebody falls out, you know, beside you, you don't think they need an exorcism, what do they need? They need a doctor. Not an exorcism we had this philosophical shift toward individualism wherein we are all now encouraged to make up our own minds and think for ourselves instead of woodenly following the imperatives of our ancestors because who knows what they knew. We had the rise of humanism and its suggestion that meaning is something that we impose upon reality, something that we make, that we make up and not something that we receive from reality. There is no meaning in reality, only the meaning that we impose upon it. And there's plenty more that we could mention, but this gives us enough of an understanding of this unprecedented and rapid shift in human history, wherein what was once indisputably clear to everybody, namely that there was a throne and somebody who was sitting on it became so disputable and unclear to so many people, to, to most people. And I got to admit, you know, there there are times when I look around this world of ours and I mean, it's not clear to me that somebody's in charge, you know. And the world is, is beautiful, it is, but it is an awful and a brutal place. And there is certainly an angle from which it doesn't look like anybody's in charge. An angle from which it appears that God's either not doing anything or just... Isn't there? I was reminded this week that this past week was the first week of school for the Uvalde students again. I can imagine what it's like to have been a parent and lost a kid in that and walk away not very sure that there's somebody in charge of this whole thing. And I know that it makes some people uncomfortable that we're willing to acknowledge that, but if you've been here at Vista for any amount of time, you know that we have a very low tolerance for what I like to call spiritual BS. And so we just need to be able to call it like it is and admit that we know what it's like to look at this world, this beautiful but terrible world and wonder if somebody's really sitting on the throne, if somebody's really in charge. And yet even more importantly, while, while many modern people, most modern people, Christians included, know what it's like to wonder if somebody's on the throne, it remains clear to me that we, we nevertheless cannot escape fully. God's gravity, that that God's gravity remains so potent that no matter how far away we think we are, no matter how far away we feel, we still feel its pull. You know, in in every unfiltered laugh, in every act of repentance, in every gesture of forgiveness, in every baby's smile, come on now, in every note, of every song. And then speaking of songs, you might have noticed that this throne at the center of all reality is apparently a very, very loud and rowdy place. Did you pick up on that? There's lightning, there's thunder, and there's lots And lots and lots of music. In Revelation 4, we have this simple variation of a very ancient Jewish song called Kadash, 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 which just means holy, holy, holy. It comes from Isaiah 6, verse 3, this vision Isaiah has of the Lord. When he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this song in Revelation 4, it starts out with that refrain, holy, 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 holy is the Lord God. But then it, it riffs a little bit, it improvises, and it moves on to speak in terms of God's eternity to proclaim that the God who was and is and is to come, that the God who is eternal, the God who both fills and overfills time. And this is the first of many songs that we will find in Revelation because Revelation, y'all, is loaded With songs. There are songs all throughout Revelation because when God's creatures get around God, it's like they just can't not sing. It's like they just can't not turn that volume up to 10 and start singing at the top of their lungs. And this isn't just true of Revelation, y'all. It is true of the entire Bible because every single time God's creatures get around God, see who God is and what God has done. You know what happens every single time God's creatures get around God? Well, the first thing that happens, y'all, is the beat begins. Right? And you know what happens next? The bass line drops. You see why I don't play bass. The bass drops. And you know what happens next? The people, they drop what they're doing, and they get busy making music, very loud and rowdy music. Everybody in the Bible sings. If you ever noticed this? Moses sings, Miriam sings, Deborah sings, David sings, Mary sings, the angels sing, the stars sing, Paul and Silas sing, Jesus sings. And if you've ever wondered why singing is such a central part of our worship here at Vista, and it has always been for every church, why don't we spend half of worship singing songs? This is why because there is clearly something about singing, about music, that makes it the most appropriate response to who God is and what God has done because nothing expresses our joy and gratitude quite like singing. And if you have ever wondered why our music here at Vista is so daggum loud, you ever wondered that? This is why we're trying to prepare you for eternity, baby, because there will be music. It's going to be very loud, and there will be no earplugs. In fact, here's the way I think about it. You know what we do on Sunday mornings here? We, we try to perform a, a sonic exorcism on you. That's what we do. <laughs> where we blast you with decibels. Where We blast all the stuffy, prudish, joyless uh, neurosis out of you so that you are ready for the joy, revelry, and rowdiness of the kingdom. Because there will be music, and it will be very, very, very loud. And this we know for the Bible tells us so, all right? I can't wait for some of y'all to ask J.C. for earplugs in the kingdom one day. He's going to be like, nope, they are in the other place, right? Crank it up. No earplugs here. One of my favorite passages is Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He said, hey, don't drink too much wine. That cheapens your life. Rather, drink the Spirit of God. Huge drafts of him sing hymns instead of drinking songs sing songs from your heart to Christ sing praises over everything any excuse for a song to God the Father in the name of our Master Jesus Christ right, now these verses which serve as life verses for many Southern Baptists I know um, these verses are often used to point out that we should uh, you know, consume alcohol wisely and that is of course all very very true but when we walk away from this text thinking that it's primarily a prohibition against drinking too much wine, well, y'all, we've kind of buried the lead, haven't we? I think we've buried the lead because rather in this text, Paul is not telling us that we shouldn't get drunk. Rather, Paul is telling us that we should get drunk, okay? You really need to hear the second part though, so listen up. <laughs> you wouldn't believe what I heard a church today. <laughs> Paul is telling us that we should get drunk. Only that instead of being drunk or filled with wine, we ought to get filled with what? We ought to get filled with the Spirit. And so notice, Paul is clearly saying that there is something about being filled with the Spirit that is like being filled with wine. That's why he makes the analogy between the two. Because you know what being filled with the Spirit is not like? It's not like waiting in line at the DMV. And it's not like being sent to the principal's office. And it's not like doing your taxes. No, rather, there's a sense in which being filled with the Spirit is like being filled with wine. Only that being filled with the Spirit is even better. Because it won't destroy your liver, destroy those around you, and leave you with a massive headache and hangover. At least that's what Dave says being filled with wine does. I don't know. (laughs) Now, case in point. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on the early Christians there in Acts 2 at Pentecost, remember that? Holy Spirit gets poured out all on them. What does everybody accuse them of? They must be drunk. They must be drunk. No, they're they're just filled with the Spirit. I love the way Andrew Wilson puts this. He says, with all the proper caveats about excess and addiction in place, there's clearly something about being filled with the Spirit that is analogous to being filled with wine. Both experiences prompt people to rejoice, sing, sing. And make music. I love that. And so this visit, uh, this visit to the loud, rowdy, and joyful center of all reality, to eternity, is very strategically placed here in Revelation. Because as we, we move forward and we get into Revelation 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, and things start to get a little weird. You get a lot of doom. You get a lot of gloom. John wants to remind us before we even get there that, hey, the good news is always better than the bad news. John wants to remind us that as awful as things might get, there is always already somebody who is always already sitting on the throne. John wants to remind us that behind that curtain, that thick, heavy curtain of sorrow and suffering that lays across our world, there is a loud, rowdy, and joyful band. And they are still playing. And they will be playing even until the end of the ages. Guy Consolmagno, incredible eyebrows um, he is known as the Pope's astronomer. He's the director of the Vatican Observatory. And as a big-time astronomer, the man has seen some incredible things, you know, comets hurling through solar systems, supernova explosions, stars being born out of cosmic dust. And yet he tells this story of how he walked away from his career in astronomy at 30 years old, even though he loved it, because this, this question had become stuck in his brain and he couldn't shake it. And his question was, why do we bother with astronomy when people are starving in the world? Why bother with astronomy when people are starving in the world? And this is a really disturbing question, right? This will this, stick with you, it'll get in your brain. Because you intuit that you could replace the word astronomy with a lot of things, couldn't you? Why do we bother with sports when people are starving in the world? Why do we bother with parties when people are starving in the world? Why, why do we bother with music when people are starving in the world? How can we dance and drink when people are dying? And of course, the question behind all these questions is something like, isn't it wrong to be happy when so much of life is so sad for so many people? And humans have probably always felt the weight of this question, but I think there's certainly a sense in which you and I feel it a little bit heavier than previous generations did. We've mentioned a lot over the last couple of years this really odd dynamic in modern culture wherein by basically every measure imaginable, we are the freest, most prosperous people who have ever lived. Not even close. And yet we are also the most anxious, angsty, and depressed people who have ever lived (laughs) It's this really odd dynamic. Um, I don't know about you, but I often feel like happiness is so fleeting, so fragile, whereas sadness is just this unstoppable, relentless force always lingering in the background. I often feel like happiness is faking it, whereas sadness is just, it's just the truth. (laughs) It's just the way things are. And I know that a lot of us feel like this. And so as, as weird as it might initially sound to hear, I know that a lot of us are uncomfortable being unashamedly happy. And so this scene of cosmic joy and revelry and revelation for might strike us as irrelevant or maybe even a little bit inappropriate. Well, our, our friend, the PubS astronomer Guy Consumano, he felt this way, and so he quit his career in astronomy, decided he would go do something more productive and responsible, and he joined the Peace Corps. They sent him to Africa. He got to do some great work there. He got to fill a lot of starving bellies for a lot of different people. But he, he still had this soft spot in his heart for astronomy. He'd kept one little telescope. Now, none of these big fans, he just had one little telescope. And so every once in a while, he would take his one little telescope out to the village's And everybody in the village would come running out. And they would look through that little telescope and they would see the the rings of Saturn, the moons of Jupiter, a sky full of a 100 billion stars. And their jaws would drop to the ground and they'd smile from ear to ear. And even though their bellies might be empty, their hearts were full, full of reverence, full of joy. And that, is why we bother with joy even when so much of life is so sad for so many people now, we take the time to bother with joy to look at stars to make jokes to drink drinks to sing songs because we need to remind ourselves that the good news is always better than the bad news because we need to turn that music of eternity up just a couple more dials so that we can hear that the band is still playing because we need to pull that thick curtain of sorrow and suffering out of the way so that we can see that the throne is not only not empty, but it is inhabited by the one who was and who is and who is to come and who is eternally For us, or as the theologian Robert Jensen put it in what is the indisputably simplest and most accurate description of how the world will end that has ever been written. Here's what he says. God will reign and the end is music. How's it working in? I don't know a lot of stuff, but this is what I do know. God's gonna reign and the end is gonna be music. And so I wanna end this morning with an invitation. I wanna invite you to let yourself, maybe for the first time, in a really, really, really long time, be unashamedly and unequivocally and unreservedly happy about the good news of the gospel. Now, I'm not naive. I know that a lot of you have walked in here with some very bad and heavy news today. I know that. I did a funeral right here 24 hours ago. I get it. I know. I know that I don't understand all the bad, heavy news you're walking around with, but I just want to invite you to understand that behind that thick curtain of sorrow and suffering that we all walk around with, there is a throne and it's not empty. And y'all, the end, the end, all caps, the end is going to be music. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. Man, we do not deserve to be here. We're here because of your gracious goodness and kindness. We do, however, confess that we've walked in here today with some very heavy news, all of us in different ways. God, we've walked in here with with shame, with sorrow, with suffering, with apathy, with denial, with skepticism, with cynicism, with lust, with greed, with trauma, all of it. And it's heavy. And sometimes it doesn't feel like anybody's sitting on that throne and it definitely doesn't sound like there's music there. But God, we, we pray that this morning, man, we might have got a glimpse, with it, that we would see seen behind that thick, heavy curtain of sorrow and suffering, that we would see what's going on at the center of all reality, this loud, rowdy, joyful celebration of the goodness of our maker, and that we would let that music of eternity determine even our broken histories. And we're able to do that with deep confidence because we know that it's not up to us, it's up to you, and in a very real sense, it has already been done. And we just get to receive it and live in it and embrace it now, even amidst all the sorrow and suffering. And so I pray that you would just let that good news find a place in our hearts. That you turn up that music of eternity a few dials for us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.